This is Rabbi Ethan Tucker for Hadar. Mordechai, a threefold tale that is easily unraveled. Purim 5779. Who is Mordechai? What do we know about him? He's, of course, one of the most famous characters in Jewish history, arguably in the Bible, and he is also the main character, or one of the main characters, of the story of Purim. But who is he, in fact? We open up the book of Esther, and the first time that the community chants in unison is with the introduction of Mordechai. Ish Yehudi Hayabeshushana Bira Ushmo Mordechai ben Yair ben Shimi ben Kish Ish Yemini. There is a Judean or Jewish man who was in the capital of Shushan, and his name was Mordechai, the son of Yair, the son of Shimi, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. And we're then told that he, and we'll come back to who the he was, was deported, was exiled from Jerusalem with the exiles that were taken away with Yechoniah, the king of Yehudah. They were taken away by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylonia. And then we're introduced to his niece, Hadassah, known as Esther, and the beginning of the story of how Esther gets taken into the palace. But the important thing we hear at the end of Esther's abduction or voluntary heading into the palace is that she would not tell anyone where she was from, where she was born, or her people, because Mordechai told her that she should keep this private. So what can we deduce about Mordechai from this passage? And in particular, are there competing narratives that we might play out in terms of who Mordechai was and, not so subtly, what it means to be a good Jew in various times and places? And in particular, I'd like to draw out three possible narratives that we can tell about Mordechai. The first narrative will be about Mordechai, the righteous Jew, the righteous rabbinic leader and hero who really fits all the stereotypes and patterns of what we would expect of a perfectly good role model exemplifying everything that's true about Torah and practice and commitment. A second model, which has emerged more popular uh, in recent years, particularly in Israel, is a critical view of Mordechai as someone who is an assimilationist, maybe even a traitor to the national cause. And then we'll explore a final view which has the notion of Mordechai as perhaps being something more complex, actually hailing from and contributing to two very different centers of Jewish life that are developing in different ways at the same time. So let's begin with that first model, which in many ways is grounded in traditional rabbinic sources. It's the notion of Mordechai as a religious leader and hero. In some ways, the best way to get an angle into this reading is to go back to a Talmudic tradition that tries to unpack how exactly did Mordechai uncover the plot to kill the king. In the Megillah, we learn that Bigtan and Teresh, who were two of the guards or officials in the palace, had a plot to assassinate King Ahasuerus, Vayivadah Davar Mordechai. And Mordechai found out about this plot and passed it on to the king. And of course, that then later plays a central role in the story as it turns in Mordechai, Esther, and the Jews' favor. But Rabbi Yochanan in the Talmud and Megillah says, well, what happened here is that Bigtan and Teresh were actually from the Tarsian people, and they talked in their local native language. And they began to hatch their plot 
in this language that they thought no one else would know. <clears throat> and says Rabbi Yochanan, Hein lo ayu yodin ki Mordochai mi yoshvei lishkat hagazitaya. Vehaya yodea b'shivim lashon. What they didn't realize is that Mordechai was actually one of those who sat in the chamber of hewn stone, a term used to describe the seat of the Sanhedrin, the high Jewish court in Jerusalem, and therefore he knew 70 languages. Building on the tradition that those fit to sit on the high court must in fact be able to know all languages spoken all over the world so they can hear any testimony delivered to them in the original. This text, Rabbi Yochanan here, says Mordechai, as a member of the Sanhedrin, would have understood the Tarsian language, and therefore he overheard Bigtan and Teresh, though they thought they were having a private conversation, he could decipher it and he then took that information off to the king. But what's important for our purposes is that this text indicates that Mordechai was a member of the Sanhedrin. That is to say, this is no simple Persian Jew off in some foreign court. In fact, this is a member of the elite of the leadership of the Jewish people. And it seems, in fact, to imagine that Mordechai was once sitting on the Temple Mount when the temple was still standing as a member of this court, and we catch him much later in life in the story in the Megillah, in the story of Ahasuerosh. It's a reading, it seems, of our initial text that the person carried out from Jerusalem in the exile of Yehoniah, the king of Judah, back in 597 BCE, is none other than Mordechai himself. And Mordechai, as a very young man, already on the Sanhedrin, leaves Jerusalem, and then he comes and spends a good amount of time in Babylonia and then Persia, and then rises to prominence there. In a way, the pinnacle of this story of Mordechai is reached by a comment with Rav Nachman saying in the Talmud in Megillah, Malachi ze Mordechai, velama nikra shemo Malachi, you want to know actually who Mordechai is? Mordechai was the prophet Malachi, the prophet who has his own book in the Bible and who speaks inspired by God. Actually, that is none other than Mordechai. And his code name, as it were, Malachi, my messenger, is because he was second to the king, not my messenger, but Malachi, like Melech, he was akin to one who was king. But the notion that Mordechai not only sat on the Sanhedrin, but is in fact a prophet whose book is preserved in the Bible, gives a clear picture of this first model. And it's a picture that I think many who grow up with the image of Mordechai in traditional Jewish settings have, which is to say he was a righteous, pious leader doing his job in this story of Purim and really indistinguishable from any of the, of the great heroes of Jewish history. So that's model one. In recent years, some have reassessed Mordechai. In particular, in contemporary Israeli and Zionist circles, the notion of a hero who sticks it out in the diaspora and who seems to be oblivious to other trends going on in the Jewish world, particularly back in Eretz Israel, is a disquieting model. The notion that Mordechai has a name, 
that is shared with a Babylonian god, Marduk, the notion that Mordechai is deep into the intrigues of the Persian palace, to say nothing of the fact that the whole book of Esther never mentions God and reads in many ways as a thoroughly secular treatment of Jewish history, all of these have led some to reimagine, well, do we have the right picture of Mordechai? Is the rabbinic image that we've just gotten, in fact, the correct way to think about this particular figure from Jewish history? I want to share here a passage from Michael Eisenberg, a contemporary Israeli writer who wrote a commentary on the book of Esther, and it came out in an English translation called The Vanishing Jew. From the title alone, you can see Eisenberg, who is an American ole from the United States to Israel in the last generation, is reflecting on differences between the diaspora and Israel more broadly and seeing Mordechai as a key figure for understanding and critiquing these dynamics. Here's what he says when looking at the genealogy at the beginning of the book of Esther. He says, All the names that precede Mordechai on his family tree are Hebrew names. He is Ben Yair, Ben Shimi, Ben Kish, Ishyamini. But Mordechai bears a foreign name, the name of the god Marduk, chief god in the ancient Mesopotamian pantheon. The first generation of readers of the Megillah would not have needed any more than this name to conclude that this character was assimilated. It would be akin to introducing a Jewish-American character named Chris or Jesus. The Shushan of old, he writes, has been reincarnated today in New York, Buenos Aires, Berlin, Los Angeles, London, Johannesburg, and Melbourne. The dilemmas that Mordechai faced in the Persian Empire when confronting a dominant culture and the world's first cosmopolitan empire also confront diaspora Jews and expat Israelis who more than ever before can leave home and try to conquer the world. They certainly may seek out these opportunities. It's even valuable. But the price must be stated clearly and openly. Here Eisenberg is at his most pointed. There is no substitute for a Jewish-Israeli identity. One who does not join the Jewish state will most likely lose both his Jewishness and his Israeliness within a few generations. A hundred years after Mordechai and Esther, too far into the future to be foreseeable, the center of Jewish life returned to Eretz Israel. Nehemiah, the antithesis of Mordechai, moved to Eretz Israel. The diaspora, on the other hand, almost evaporated as if it had never existed. Okay, those are fighting words and ones that clearly many contemporary Jews would not accept and not find accurate, much less comforting and encouraging. But let's take in what Eisenberg is picking up on, which is that there are elements of the Mordechai narrative that suggest that Mordechai is increasingly enveloped in a larger world that is a different culture, that is not a distinctly Jewish culture, and he in fact seems to exhibit the signs of classical cultural assimilation, ways in which Jews can come from a place, come from a certain ancestry, and begin to look very different in a new time and place. Putting aside what we think about Eisenberg's prognosis for the future of Jewish and Israeli identity in the contemporary moment, 
he does turn our eye to some other details in the book and in the character of Mordechai that are striking. Perhaps the most noteworthy is to pay attention to the other place where Achashverosh, the king in the Megillah, is used as a time peg for significant events in Jewish history. And that happens in the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra details how returning exiles from Babylonia coming home to Judea started to try to rebuild the temple a second time and the ways in which many enemies and competitors and antagonists around them sought to prevent them from doing so. Initially, the book talks about Zerubbabel, the first political leader of that returning exilic community, who tries to push the project forward, tries to find a way where this young, fledgling community can succeed in regaining sovereignty. Nonetheless, the text tells us in chapter 4, Vayihi am ha'aretz mirapim yedei am Yehuda umevahalim otam livnot. But the other peoples of the lands were weakening the Judeans and making it very difficult for them to build. They would find all kinds of ways to get advisors and other forces turned against them all throughout the reign of Koresh, Cyrus, the king of Persia, and Darius, his successor. And then the final line of this passage in chapter 4 of the book of Ezra says, Uvemalchut achashverosh bitchilat malchuto katvu sitna al yoshvei Yehuda virushalayim. In the reign of Achashverosh, at the start of his reign, these enemies of the Jewish people drew up an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. This is actually a stunning verse because the Megillah that we read on Purim begins, of course, with Vayehi bime Achashverosh. It happened in the time of Achashverosh, Bishnat Shalosh Lemolcho, in the third year of his reign, that all of the events of Purim played out. We find out now by reading the book of Ezra that at that same exact time, at the start of the reign of Achashverosh, there are Jews trying to rebuild a second commonwealth in the land of Israel, and there are people working against them from within the Persian bureaucracy. This, for Eisenberg and others, creates a very troubling picture of Mordechai. Mordechai is now a Persian Jew sitting in the diaspora, hiding his identity, finding a way to gain favor with the king, at the exact moment that his fellow co-religionists, his fellow people, are in fact trying desperately to start up a project of national renewal. This opens a very different second model of who Mordechai may be. Is Mordechai perhaps, to use Eisenberg's critical language, an assimilationist, maybe even a traitor to the national cause, sitting on the sidelines protecting himself and his circles and his family, while the larger Jewish people could use his help, his power, his influence, and we hear nothing about the land of Israel, much less God, in the Megillah, in the story of Purim. Maybe that's the way Mordechai should be viewed if we take the biblical evidence seriously. 
which is that he is not a pious leader cut of classic rabbinic cloth, but instead Mordechai is someone who learned to look out for local diasporic Jewish interests at the price of, if you will, the Zionist endeavor of the day. Now that starts, of course, to cut a little too close to home. And you can see here the powerful way in which Mordechai really becomes a potential symbol, a canvas on which we can paint the notion of a Jew, who is a good Jew, and how is a Jew supposed to interact in the world. In that spirit, I want to share a third model, which perhaps takes a little bit of the realism of the second model, but retains some of the core rabbinic attitude towards Mordechai, and perhaps also brings in an aspect of the biblical record that Eisenberg overlooks. And that would be the notion of what you might call Mordechai the diasporic Zionist, or in less jargony terms, someone who actually deeply invested in both worlds that were developing at that time, the fledgling Jewish commonwealth and the ancestral homeland, as well as the global empire, which was the seat of power and influence, and whose friendliness towards the Jews would also surely be key for their success and flourishing. To fill out this third model, we have to turn to the second chapter of Ezra. And in the second chapter of Ezra, we get a list of the people who first came back from the exile to try to rebuild. And it says, these are the people of the provinces who came up from among the captive exiles whom King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had carried into exile to Babylon, who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own city. They came with, and here is the list, Zerubbabel, Yeshua, Nehemiah, Sirayah, Re'alayah, Mordechai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvai, Rechum, and Ba'ana. These are the list of the great men of the people of Israel. Now, these are just names, and it's very hard to know exactly who are the people on this list, and do they have any relationship to people we know from elsewhere. There are many people in Jewish history that share names with one another. So Zerubbabel is clearly the political leader of that period of time. But what about Yeshua? That seems to be the Kohen Gadol who is mentioned elsewhere, the high priest mentioned in the book of Zechariah. Nehemiah next on the list. Is this the Nehemiah known from his biblical book coming quite a while after Zerubbabel, more than a century? Or is it just another Nehemiah who shared that name? And most pointedly, later on in this list, there is a Mordechai. There is a man named Mordechai who seems to be someone who was exiled and came back. How are we to understand his relationship to the Mordechai that we know and are familiar with? So one thing that's interesting is that rabbinic sources did assume that this Mordechai is the same Mordechai from the Megillah. If you look in the Mishnah in Shkalim and the Babylonian Talmud in Menachot, they quote a tradition that there were various people who were in charge of things in the temple in the second period, and there was one man there in charge of one particular job known as Pitachya, literally the one who God opens up or opens oneself up to God. 
And the tradition there in those sources says, actually, Ptachya is a code name for Mordechai. And why was Mordechai also known as Ptachya? Shepoteach dvarim vidorshan v'yodea b'shivim lashon. Mordechai was also called Ptachya because he knew how to open things up, how to expound on them and make them intelligible, for he knew 70 languages. Dahava bayil lishanei vidarish. He knew how to mix and deploy various languages and use them to explain texts and ideas. And that's why it says in the verse, the one we read a few moments ago from Ezra, Mordechai Bilshan. Reading the list we heard earlier, not as two names, a man named Mordechai and a man named Bilshan. It's one man named Mordechai Bilshan, where Bilshan is related to the word Lashon, or language. Mordechai, the linguist. Mordechai, the polyglot. Just as we saw in an earlier tradition, Mordechai is understood to have been on the Sanhedrin. Here, we play that out as saying, yes, Mordechai was a linguist, not just on the Sanhedrin, but among the people who came back, who are understood to have returned to the land of Israel with the returning exiles. So if we take that rabbinic tradition seriously, that Mordechai is on the list of people like Zerubbabel and Nehemiah and others who came back, well, then what does our timeline look like? How are we to understand who this man was and how he fits in to these different narratives? And I would suggest to you this paints a very different picture. Going back to the earlier list, we would say, well, Mordechai is actually the fourth generation from Kish, Mordechai, ben Yair, ben Shim'i, ben Kish, Ishyamini. Kish is the man who leaves Jerusalem, who is exiled, perhaps with his younger children and grandchildren in tow. Mordechai, wherever he is born, nonetheless retains a deep sense of being connected back to someone who was exiled from the land of Israel, someone who dates back to a time of Jewish sovereignty. And he comes back to be a part of the initial wave of people who are getting this project off the ground back in the land of Israel. That is to say, Mordechai appearing on the list in the book of Ezra of those who returned is best understood there as a young man, a young idealist who goes with Zerubbabel and others to help get this project off the ground. Maybe he even sits in the Sanhedrin. Maybe he is sitting there using the languages that he has learned in the diaspora to make some kind of contribution to that initial project. But when we encounter him in the Purim story, which is already during the reign of Ahasuerus, as opposed to the reign of Cyrus and the earlier kings that allowed for the exiles to return, there Mordechai is already an old man. Mordechai is someone at a later stage in life, but who spent some of his best and earliest years building up the yeshuv, building up the presence of Jews in political renewal in the land of Israel. In that case, we get a very different picture of Mordechai. Mordechai is neither a one-dimensional figure who simply is part of the Sanhedrin and then ends up randomly in another story, 
Nor is Mordechai an assimilationist mired in the diaspora who thinks nothing of his brethren off to the West. Mordechai is a complex and rich figure who straddles the two most interesting and important worlds of his day. When the call comes out for Jews to be a part of rebuilding themselves politically, Mordechai is there. And when Mordechai has the opportunity to rise into the corridors of power and influence and fend off whether it's a threat to the king's life or ultimately a threat to the Jews' security throughout the empire, he is there. And it is precisely his diasporic toolbox of multi-languages and cultures and ways in which he can deeply uh, engage with any culture and setting in which he is put, that is what enables Mordechai to become the Ish Yehudi, the prominent Judean, who is also Mishneh Lamelech HaChashverosh, a second in line to the king. These models, I think, are intriguing both for just engaging in biblical interpretation and understanding who this character is, but they also open up Purim as a time to think deeply what are our expectations of how a Jew should behave? What are our expectations and our models for what it means to be a quote-unquote good Jew with respect to one's moment in history and with respect to one's people? There's no question that we see these different models of how one carries oneself as a Jew in the world. There are people who have very simple, straightforward, passionate, and pious relationships with Jewish history rabbinic tradition, religious expectation, and leadership, and they chart out a course of just be faithful to what came before, just stick with your people, just stick with the conventional way of looking at the world, and the Jewish people would not be able to survive and thrive if there weren't a good number of leaders who behaved in that way. There's also no question that being a part of a larger empire and civilization presents incredible opportunities and incredible risks and it's undeniable that there is a process of acculturation that can lead to assimilation and a loss of one's bearing and identity that we can get glimpses of through parts of the Purim story. But I'd also like to think that we might take the figure of Mordechai broadly considered as he is seen throughout the biblical and rabbinic record as inviting at least some of us to something that is more complex and proudly multivocal, which is to say... I am a citizen of the Jewish people. I am a citizen of the larger world. I never forget where I came from. I step up for the national challenges of the day that the Jewish people face. And I also use the talents that have been given to me by God and by the contingencies of my birth and my existence to contribute to a larger world and to use the talents and languages and other tools that I have picked up to be a pride for the Jewish people in a broader and historically richer context. Thanks for listening. To learn more with Hadar, please visit hadar.org Torah.